You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates. I'm so happy you could join me. Maybe you're on your way to work, but more likely than not, you're sitting at home. And to get our Monday started, what better way than to dive into the latest news in real estate here in the Toronto market, but also have a nice little sip of coffee. I know I've got my coffee. If you don't, grab your tea, grab your mocha, whatever you drink. My cup says good morning, beautiful, so I am hyped and ready to go. As many of you know, we have just started this podcast doing daily over the last week or so. So what I'm realizing now is that news doesn't necessarily come out in the same way on the weekend. And so today what I wanted to do from all the recaps of what I've seen up until this point is go through some topics that are geared towards what some of the headlines have said, but maybe aren't here from the last day or so, but also come from conversations I've had with clients over the last week or two. And so to give you a heads up on where we're going today, today I want to talk about an article that I see that I just love and I think it's hilarious and I want to talk a little bit about it. What if banks were treated like landlords? This is vindication for any of you landlords out there that are getting absolutely screwed by your tenants not making rent payments. And all the challenges you guys are facing are for, aren't going to be for nothing. Once you hear this article, it's so funny and I love it. Then we're going to jump into, is the recent first-time homebuyer incentive working? You guys will recall last fall, pre-election, we saw this incentive program come in place to try and help first-time buyers get into a market that's almost impossible to do. And so the question is, is it working? And finally, to wrap it all up, I want to ask the question, what happens when condos can't collect maintenance fees? And this came from a conversation I had with a client. It was an amazing question, and I'm surprised by the information that I found. A lot of it reminds me of back in my school days, because I don't deal with a lot of law claims. Often the response is, go talk to a lawyer about that. And I mean, that's still the case here. But at the end of the day, I did learn some of this in school while we were kind of going through this process. And what happens in an emergency situation when a condo can't collect the maintenance fees? I want to talk about that because that could be an impact as it was geared from my client to a market that's failing where people are having issues making payments and in vast numbers. So let's jump right into this article, which I love putting the good stuff first. This article comes all the way from Edmonton. Edmontonjournal.com says, Saturday's letters, banks have it easy compared to landlords. And I love this, it's just amazing. Listen to this. And, it, and it's pretty much a call to the banks. Treat banks like landlords. First, make mortgage payments optional at the choice of the homeowner. Perhaps the homeowner cannot afford it or just chooses not to pay. The banks would have no say. Also, the homeowner need not notify them. Just don't pay. Second, the missed mortgage payment does not go onto the mortgage. It is a new debt, but there cannot be any security. Also, no penalties, penalties or interest on missed payments. Third, prohibit banks from ever taking any action against the house carrying the mortgage. It is exempt from foreclosure until further notice. This also applies to previous missed payments and foreclosure actions already underway, not just defaults arising because of the pandemic. Fourth, cute cross default punishments are forbidden. No canceling credit cards, calling other loans, reducing lines of credit, and so on. Finally, banks must still pay the municipal taxes as they did when the mortgage payments were made. But, not, but now, the banks must also pay all utilities for the homeowner. That is a big blank check. Sound rough? Become a landlord. You'll get used to it. <laughs> I love it. 
That is hilarious. Imagine if we were to apply the same logic that we've applied to these landlords and the punishment, the beating they're taking from tenants in the way of our mortgage. Do you think that would fly in our financial segment? No, and, and there, there's no way this would happen. But somehow, because it's a little guy and he doesn't have enough of a voice to protect himself, this is what we're finding. And I feel bad for the landlords out there. I'm sorry, guys. At the end of the day, the advice is you need to be smart as a landlord. You need to have money. You are the business person. You need to be able to weather these storms. But it's just so unfortunate that these storms have happened in the first place when they could have been avoided. Now, you guys will recall last week we did a segment talking about the possibility of rent relief. This is why I think rent relief should happen. If we're going to be treating the banks with so much power in this, ex this example and yet taking it all away from the person paying the mortgage, then perhaps there should be more of a balance as well on the rent side. And so that's what that is calling for. And I really hope that something is done. We're seeing things being done on the commercial side, which is affecting business. And, and it's all case by case. It could very well be this week that we see something happen on the side of rent relief. I really, truly hope so. Because this, as you can see, it's just a very unfair balance. And there really is a double standard that's happening. This is not to go against the tenant, but this is in favor of the landlord that maybe we need to rethink things because you can see we are getting royally screwed and there are opportunities for tenants to take advantage of landlords, which is just simply unfair. All right, let's move on. I want to go on to topic number two, first time home buyer incentive. Let me do a little history lesson just off the top of my head. Actually, I have an article here just as a backup notes. This comes from uh, ipolitics.ca. And it gives some of the highlights. So first time home buyer incentive, for those of you who don't know, we do have a video on it. You can go back and check. It's on YouTube. If you want to learn a little bit about it, it might even be on our podcast uploaded from a previous date too. But essentially what's happening here is this is geared towards only first time home buyers who earn less than $120,000 a year. And what's offered to them is 10% towards their down payment if they're purchasing a new construction property and 5% if they're purchasing a resale home. And this is an interest-free loan, but it's not really a loan. What's happening here is the government is partnering with you on that property. So it'd be kind of like if you had a grandma that had a bunch of money and you couldn't afford it and you needed that extra little bit of money. She's got 5%, but she says, you know what, if I'm going to put 5% into the property, I'm going to want to own 5% as well. So she's kind of a greedy grandma if you really think about it. And I think this is where we're going to run into this problem is if people are actually taking this deal or not. Not to mention, you've also got a government that's holding your hand. And who wants another reason to hold the government's hand? As this article continues, first-time buyers are qualified for assistance if the value of the mortgage does not exceed $480,000. So for you first-time homebuyers going out there buying a property in Toronto for $480,000, let me know where you're getting these homes because I want in. Buyers must repay the incentive for 25 years or if the property is sold. That makes sense. That kind of lines up with the RRSP loan. I, I get it. When you sell the property, you have to stay there. If you're going to move out or you're going to turn into an investment property, yeah, I'm not going to be a part of that because the government's not going to fund your investments. But the government is going to support you in your first home. During the federal election, however, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised changes to the incentive program by raising the maximum mortgage value cap to $789,000 for the Greater Toronto Area, Vancouver, and Victoria, BC. Okay, so now we're talking. You guys will remember, and this is why this ultimately came out, the first-time homebuyer incentive was a call to a lack of affordability across the country, but it never addressed the Greater Toronto Area and Vancouver and Victoria, these areas were not included in this this limit that we just saw of $480,000. So now what's being said is during that election campaign, they doubled down. 
the the liberals said we're going to bump that up to 789,000 as part of our campaign promise. I can't find any articles talking about that change ever happening, and I don't think it has happened. It could happen down the road, but when you've got the coronavirus just running rampant through our society, is that something that's going to happen right now? Definitely not. I can almost guarantee that. And so now we're left still in an environment where people can't really apply this thing. And so this brings me to an article that just came out uh, recently within the last few days called Only 2K, 2000 Canadians Have Used First-Time Homebuyer Incentives. So AXIT experts say, well, hold on a minute. So we're really, we're getting ahead here, but this is what this article reads. Only 2,000 Canadians have signed up to let the government share equity in their homes through the first-time homebuyer incentive since it launched last fall. The real estate experts say they hope to see it axed as a result. And in quotes, it just was not well thought through. Really just a very unattractive offer for first-time homebuyers. According to documents tabled in the House of Commons last Saturday, only 4,414 Canadians applied to the shared equity program for the first-time homebuyer between September 1st, 2019 and February 2020. Of those, just 2,061 were approved, so roughly half of them. The program was touted as a way to help 100,000 Canadians become homeowners for the first time over the course of three years. At the current rate of 2,000 approvals over the first five months, it would take nearly two decades, though, to hit that target without major changes. So here we've got a government official standing up saying on back on background said they still think the program is on track to hit its targets, noting that it takes time to get up and running. The official said it's likely no contracts were actually signed through the program until around November 9, 2019 and that the expectation is more people will apply as it becomes better known. But then we've got the, the opposite side coming from these, quote, real estate experts from Ramana King, director of content at the real estate listing site Zolo.ca. She says... I'm not surprised, not in the least, she said of one of the low number of applications and approvals and quote, nobody really likes the idea of having the government as a partner in their home ownership. And I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles that is this shared equity program has. Okay, wait a minute. I kind of disagree with what she just said. The biggest hurdle is that in areas where there is a lack of affordability are the same areas that don't qualify within this program. I mean, that, that's pretty obvious in my eyes. So to then say people aren't applying because they don't want to partner with the government, well, maybe not. Let's, not. let's not assume that because we haven't actually given this program a fair shot. So the short of it is, is nobody's applying for this program. It's not doing what it said. This raising of to $789,000 limit is what might need to happen for us to get a full picture of what's going on. Let's not just throw the thing in the garbage. People elected a government that said they're going to do this thing. Let's do it and see if it works. Do I think people are going to be running to do that as a first option? No, I do think people are going to continue as I'm seeing, even with investors relying on parents and other loved ones and partnerships. And there's so many other creative ways you can take ahead of this. But what this creates is an opportunity for people that don't have those resources at hand. Ultimately, it was an election promise, but I think because it was a promise given, it needs to be fulfilled before we just scrap the thing. And uh, that's what I'm going to say about that. I'm going to leave it there. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But again, I don't think you're going to see any major changes in the next little while because nobody's out there purchasing real estate. So what do we need to soften the thing for Toronto and Vancouver residents? Moving on to another topic, I want to cover a question that I got from a client of mine, and it was a very good one, and I promised them I would look into it further. And so as I've got that information for you, why not share it with you? I knew my perspective on it, having gone through schooling to become a realtor but it's not something that you come across on a daily basis and so I didn't have the answer offhand and so I wanted to see what are some of the articles have to say about this and there's not a ton of recent stuff but they all seem to line up with what I've learned in the past now ultimately 
consult a lawyer in this if this applies to you. But the question is for investors, if people in my condominium are all of a sudden struggling and they can't make payments for their maintenance fees, how is that going to affect my building? How How is that going to circle back and hurt me, especially if I'm in an area that maybe the condo fees are substantially higher and typically in maybe less desirable neighborhoods, we could find ourselves running into a bit of a problem. And so this is where this question came out of. And I want to read for you a recent article I saw called this is out of mortgagebrokernews.ca toronto condo defers residents fees amid coronavirus outbreak the article says a condo in liberty village toronto has postponed its residents april fees and an official has expressed hopes that other buildings will follow this example quote i think it's the responsible thing to do according to greg gagliano board of board president at the toy factory lofts it occurred to me that along with the mortgage payment usually you have a maintenance fee payment if you live in a condo he told the Toronto Star, duh, noting that the idea was inspired by a major bank's decision to defer the client's bills. Mark Keist, who has lived in the loft since 2008, was among those who welcomed Gagliano's policy change. He and his wife are normally charged $507 in maintenance monthly. We jumped on it right away. It's just going to be an enormous help to help us get through the next six, seven weeks, Keith said. What the board here has decided to do, it helps take the pressure off. We're all the same, same great unknown here for them to be proactive like this. We just really appreciate it. Okay, here's my conspiracy theory. I would say Gagliano and Keith are buddies and one of them is the president and they love each other's ideas. But in reality, this is a possibility that people can apply, where people can vote on, and we've seen it in the in the news here, so more likely we've had other condos follow suit if they can afford to do so to remove maintenance fees. But I think before we get into that, we need to kind of understand how a condo works. What do, where, where does this money go? Where does it come from? What do we do with it? So there's an article here that kind of summarizes really beautifully. In Canada, condo corporations are run by board of directors. These legal entities make all the important decisions concerning matters such as condo finances, facility maintenance and upkeep, how to enforce bylaws, rules, declarations, and condo acts. Common expense fees, so this is our maintenance fees, are what you pay to maintain the so-called common elements of your condo. They go towards everything from the parking garages and shared recreation spaces to lobbies and landscaping elements. In addition to covering the labor, compliance, and material costs of routine maintenance, these fees may contribute to reserve funds used for major repairs and business expenses. And then that article, we'll talk about in a second, what happens if you fail, fail to pay it. But here's the thinking here. This money isn't just getting thrown into a pot and then not being used. This money is actually serves a purpose and it's to, it's to maintain that condo. So if you're going to limit the amount of payments coming in, naturally, either expenses will go down, but more likely you're going to need to tap into your reserve funds. And this is why a reserve fund exists. This is why we do status certificate checks before we purchase a property. And if you have a building that is not running on a strong reserve fund and makes a decision like this or ultimately ends up in lawsuits with a number of tenants because they owe you money and need to do all these this chasing around, you could find yourself in a bit of a challenge. So the, the health of the condo will determine, and this is ultimately the, the answer, will determine the success rate. And so knowing your condo, whether that's getting involved, I highly encourage my clients to get involved in the condo boards if they have time to be like Gagliano and be able to make these decisions on whether you and your family are going to make payments or not, or at least be at the table to hear what the decision is going to be. It gives you a big edge in allowing your building, especially if you're business minded, to succeed. 
And I know many of our listeners are quite business-minded having heard the questions, for example, I got on this one. You can see the brains that we've got out there. So if you guys want to be on top of things and you want to be in the know, continue to listen to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, of course, but make sure you're getting involved in your community and being at the table when these big decisions are being made. So the question comes back to what happens if people don't pay these maintenance fees? When a condo owner fails to pay these costs, condominium corporations may seek common expense liens or formal legal securities used to secure the delinquent sums. Although condo boards need to file notices and register their intentions via formal certificates within 90 days, that's important, three months of a default. These aren't big hurdles for most entities, by the way. Corporations that follow through gain immense power since liens may give them rights to sell the condo unit since claims to the collection or send claims to the collections or take over recovery steps take other recovery steps okay so this was the answer i on impulse gave to my client and this is what i wanted to research is what strength does the condo have my understanding was they do put a lien i knew that but also that ends up creating a conflict with your mortgage because your mortgage doesn't want you to have these liens on the property and so ultimately what can happen is they can sell your unit so let's say we get find ourselves in a building that has many of many tenants not making these maintenance fees and the decision by the condo board is to sell these units to try and collect on these things because we only got 90 days to file these liens and to take action. Now, all of a sudden, you're not listed against one or two other individuals. You're listed against 10. And so the value for that building, of course, goes down all due to a poorly managed building. Now, ultimately, make sure you're checking with a lawyer on these things because these are very high-level questions and it's case by case. But this is what I'm seeing. And a lot of this advice is also coming from lawyer blogs and websites and information. And here's one more. Once the lien is registered, it grants the condominium priority over the mortgage. This is what I said, and I wasn't 100% sure, but I'm seeing it here again. This was my understanding as well. This very powerful tool to collect arrears. Imagine that. Imagine you take precedence over the mortgage. That's how strong these condo boards are. The, the condo corporation, the condo level, I love to relate it with clients when they ask me, what is it to government? You've got a federal government, a provincial government, a municipal government, and a condo government. You need to follow the rules of that condo government. You subscribe to it. Just like when you've walked into the city of Toronto and the municipality, you've subscribed to the laws and the rules of that land. In the condo, you've done the same. And so if you're not following these things, they have the legal right to step on you and to squash you and put you in your place in defense of the other individuals within that area. A lien expires if it's not registered within three months of when the default first occurred. So in theory, if we're closed April, May, June, you would expect to see these things rolling out in the next few months. It was a wonderful question. I'm so thankful that I got it. And I'm so thankful I could share the answer with you today, this morning on our podcast. I'm excited to see what Monday brings as far as news and meet you guys tomorrow morning with some more. This is great stuff. And I hope you guys are loving it. If so, if you're joining us on iTunes, please leave a review on behalf of everybody on all our other channels. And I'll see you guys tomorrow morning. Take care and keep it real.